Welcome back to Hidden Messages Podcast. I remember first starting this podcast with Debbie, and this was, gosh, I want to say it was like five years ago. And our initial idea was that it would actually be about books. And I think that that became difficult because we actually didn't read the same types of books. And also, you know, even though I think we probably read more than, say, the average person does, it's still a lot easier to consume movies and TV shows than it is to consume books. You know, it's just, I think, I I don't remember who described it this way before, but I, I remember reading something at one point where someone had described watching movies and TVs as kind of like a passive activity. I mean, obviously, nothing's 100% passive. Any, any kind of media that you consume, you have to do some processing in your brain. But you can just kind of sit back and have shows just kind of play in the background. And I think people do this too, right? Where they just kind of like, I don't want to watch something that's too involved. Or I'm going to have to think about stuff. I just want to have something in the background while I do X, right? And X could be knitting a sweater. Net X could be, you know, doing work. I definitely know I've had coworkers in the past who like sit there and watch Netflix or they watch a soccer game or whatever it is while they're doing their work. There are things that you can watch in the background while you do something else. And you may not pick up on all of the things. You may miss certain things, but it's still kind of like just there. And if your eye happens to glance in there, you're consuming stuff, but you're not kind of actively participating. When you read a book, it's kind of hard to read a book in the background. Like if you stop reading for a second, the book doesn't just keep playing, right? Like, I mean, actually, I should take that back. There are audiobooks. So I guess audiobooks would be similar in some fashion to the type of consumption that we do for movies and TV shows, and that you could, in fact, have an audiobook just kind of playing in the background. You're only half paying attention to it. You miss some things, whatever. But even with an audiobook, there is still something that you have to construct in your mind. Even if they're describing characters, what they wear, how they behave, there's a type of visualization in your brain that happens. And it doesn't even have to be like a strict visualization in terms of like a picture. There's something, even if it's kind of abstract, but in your brain that you're constructing, if it's just words, whether it's audio words or written words. And so you have to kind of build something. You have to build a kind of world. In one sense, it's it means you have to do a little more work when you're reading than if you're watching TV or watching a movie. But it also means that it's a little bit more satisfying experience. I think when, once I've read a good book and gotten absorbed in it, I feel like I've dived into their world and then kind of come back out for a breath of air. You know, you could make the case there are some movies and TV shows that kind of feel very immersive and you feel very involved and you binge it and you kind of feel that same sense of like, okay, I just came up for air. But it is a little bit different. So this is kind of a long intro to basically say I wanted to review a book today. I've talked about some random things. I've reviewed some movies and TV shows. Today I wanted to talk about Last Night at the Telegraph Club, which is a book by Melinda Lowe. And I picked it up at the Ripped Bodice, which is an independent bookstore in Culver City, which is near LA, or I guess technically it's in LA County, but it's not in LA City. If you ever have a chance to go to Ripped Bodice, you should go. It's such an interesting store, just even visually speaking, the way it's decorated. It's ostensibly a romance book store in that, you know, there are a lot of romance books in there, hence the name Ripped Bodice. But there's all different types of romance books. There's like mystery romance, supernatural romance, period romance. They take great pains to make sure there's a diverse set of romance books. 
So it's not just like white hetero couples on the cover of every book. They also have a kids section, which is actually usually not romance, but it's just like kids books that are a little bit more socially conscious than just the random kid book that you might come across in another bookstore. And the people there, you can tell, really care about books and are really invested in the store. So I happened to pick up last night at the Telegraph Club because the cover looked interesting. I know that sounds really shallow, but <laughs> I mean, they make, they design covers for a reason, right? It's supposed to entice you to read the book, but the cover looked interesting. It's kind of this, I don't know if it's a physical painting or a digital painting, but it's, it's like some kind of painting drawing of, you know, this dark blue nightscape in what kind of looks like Chinatown, I think. And there's two people off to the corner kind of kissing or, or being intimate with each other, but not necessarily sexually. And I just thought it was interesting. It The way that it's bound, it looks like just any kind of generic hardcover YA book. I guess you could say it's YA. I, I feel like YA as a category, young adult fiction is, it's a little blurry where those boundaries are. I don't even know how you define young adult fiction. On one level, obviously it's targeted at young adults, right? Like the idea is that it's supposed to appeal to an age group specifically like there's a target demographic of i don't know what the range is maybe 10 to 18 or maybe it's like 11 to 16 or something like that there's some idea of an age group that it would appeal to and usually with YA lit the characters the protagonists are also kind of in that age group there's not a lot of YA lit where the main characters are 70 to 80 years old throughout the whole thing i think in theory it's supposed to also be kind of easier to read but I'm of the opinion that if your book is hard to read for teenagers, maybe you should rethink your language and make it easier to read. <laughs> like that, that's kind of, this is a little bit of a tangent, but that's kind of one of the things that I kind of hated about like reading things like Foucault and Derrida and stuff in college is that like maybe these ideas are interesting, but why is it written in such a convoluted way? Like there's nothing about complicated ideas that mean that they have to be expressed in inaccessible ways. End of tangent. But yeah, this book, it just looked kind of interesting and it took place in San Francisco and I, I lived there for a while or I had lived there for a while. So I just thought I'd give it a go. It also passed my major test of YA Lit, which is that it has to be written in the past tense. That's just a weird little pet peeve of mine. I know that you can suspend disbelief and whatever, but like there's something about when I read present tense fiction, it just, it's hard for me to get in that headspace, right? Like, and for those of you who don't know, past tense fiction is like, then I said this to her and then she did that and then I did that and da 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 da. Like it, you're talking about some time that happened in the past and the idea, which you're also still suspending disbelief, but in a different way, is that you're pretending that somebody is telling you this about something that happened in the past. Present tense fiction is like you just say it's happening as if it's happening at that moment, right? Like, I am walking into this door. She says this. I say that. I do this. I'm feeling this. And I think the idea behind that is supposed to make you feel more in the moment, less removed, but for me, it has the opposite effect. I feel more removed. It feels very alienating and it's hard for me to get into that. It feels a little bit, frankly, like that moment in Monty Python, the Holy Grail, where they're reading this cave carving. He who is valiant and pure of spirit may find the Holy Grail in the castle of... Uh... What? The castle of... 
What is that? He must have died while carving it. Oh, come on. Well, that's what it says. Look, if he was dying, he wouldn't bother to carve. Ah, you just say it. Well, that's what's carved in the rock. Perhaps he was dictating. Oh, shut up. That's the same feeling that I get when I read presentations fiction, which I'm like, if you are experiencing these things at this moment, you're not writing them down. So, yeah, I mean, again, I, I get theoretically what the case is for that working. It just doesn't work for me. So this passed my smell test. It's like written in the past tense. It's written about San Francisco. It's a queer romance. I dig it. And I was kind of pleasantly surprised. Like I thought it would just be okay. It was actually really good. And what I really liked about it was that Melinda Lowe, and I don't know if she's, I want to say she's from the Bay Area or she spent some time in the Bay Area, but it's also clear. I mean, she actually says explicitly what she used as her sources at the end. But it's very clear, even as you're reading it, that she has done her research. I mean, she this when when I describe this like historical fiction, this is actually historical fiction. Not not in the sense that it actually happened exactly the way it's written, but Melinda Lowe really did her due diligence in terms of researching the time period and the place and a lot of the cultural things of that time. And what I also really liked about it is it's about a queer couple, a queer teenage couple in the 1950s. And I feel as if there are two kind of polar opposite dangers that one can fall into in terms of writing about that sort of thing. And I feel like, especially given the target audience, but one of them is that you can make it too tragic. And I'm not, I don't want to try to, I don't want to give any spoilers exactly, but I'll kind of give you a sense of the tone of the book. But one is that you can make it too tragic where it's like these people are just so persecuted and it's all about them just being harassed and beaten up and imprisoned and dying and things were just so horrible for gay people back then right that's one direction you can go in and then the other direction is kind of like no they just had fun nothing happened they were just having fun and we'll just pretend like the 50s were super accepting of gay people i think that there is a happy medium to have there and i think melinda lowe does a really good job of sort of showing the racism and anti- queer hatred of the 1950s, but also not making it like trauma porn. And so it's not just some super depressing story about how horrible things were back then. There were sort of glimpses of like, ooh, oh, that's not good. And there's definitely some things that you're kind of like, oh, ooh, that's, that's really not good. But it's not primarily about suffering. And I really think we need more of these types of narratives. Like I'm thinking specifically, and again, I know I said I was going to talk about books, but I'm just going to reference a movie just for a second. I'm thinking specifically of a movie called See You Yesterday, which I was really excited about. It's a time travel movie. I, I don't know if it's still on Netflix, but I think it was first on Netflix, at least when I saw it. It's a time travel movie, and it's about a bunch of teen, a couple of teenagers, black teenagers, and they can time travel. And the first 30 or 40 minutes of the movie are so refreshing. They are so just new and exciting because you rarely see that. You rarely see a movie where it's literally just about a couple of black teenagers having fun and doing wild time travel stuff, like sci-fi adventure stuff. Usually it's either like gangster, it's so hard to live as poor narrative where people are dying and stuff, or it's like a Cosby show, like Huxtable family kind of thing where it's like, oh, well, 
you know, we're just living our middle-class lifestyle. And I think that's, that's like too ordinary and it's like too glossed over in some ways. But then you also don't want it to be so horrific all the time. Like, yes, black people experience trauma. Yes, there's tons of racism, but like black people are also just trying to live their lives and they have imaginations and want to have fun and adventures too, just like anybody. And so I was all excited to see, see you yesterday because it looked like it was just going to be some adventure fun film. And I don't want to give away all the details, but I will tell you if you haven't seen it, that after the first 40 minutes or so, it quickly changes tone to be this really dark trauma porn movie. And I don't want to say it's not well made, but I think it was a little bait and switchy in that, you know, it looks like it's supposed to be just some like fun adventure, time travel, supernatural movie. And then it ends up being trauma porn. So back to last night at the Telegraph Club, it is not trauma porn. There are some sad moments. There is some prejudice. There's some stuff. But it's basically just a love story between two teenagers in San Francisco in the 50s. And I don't know. I think it's it's well worth a read. I'd highly recommend it, particularly if you're interested in 1950s San Francisco or if you're interested in queer romance fiction for teenagers, it's it's just fun. I think there's also, you know, apart from their particular romance, there's just interesting cultural stuff around gender bending and performance art and that sort of thing. So yeah, Melinda Lowe's Last Night at the Telegraph Club. It's a self-contained story. It's not a series because I know that's also a popular thing these days with why you lit is to have like a trilogy or a, you know, more than trilogy. <laughs> This is just one book. You can just read it all at once. And yeah, I'd recommend it. Last Night at Telegraph Club by Melinda Lowe.